You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Looking up in the black sky at the planet Earth, it's trying to get a little bit emotional at this point. Actually, I wept. Uh, the tears just rolled down my cheeks, and uh, I never would have predicted that to happen, but it was a very, very emotional moment for me. Astronaut Alan Shepard. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. a special hello to any of you visiting Now I've Heard Everything for the first time after seeing one of my TikTok videos. Thank you so much and welcome. Alan Shepard was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, the, the guys with the right stuff, you know. But just a few years later, he also became the oldest man ever to set foot on the surface of the moon at age 47. Shepard was a key player in NASA's Apollo space program, the mission that put us on the moon on this day in 1969. Some 25 years after that first moon landing, Alan Shepard, along with fellow astronaut Deke Slayton and two veteran journalists, wrote a book about the inside story of the program. The book was called Moonshot. Now, sadly, Deke Slayton died before the book was released. But I did get the chance to meet and talk with Alan Shepard. So here now, from 1994, Alan Shepard. There have certainly been other books written over the last many years about the space program and one aspect or another of it, but this is the first time we've read, as the subtitle says, the inside story of America's race to the moon. Well, we think it's unique in, uh, in several respects. One, some fine books have been written, for example, about Apollo 11, the first lunar landing, but uh, just specifically about that particular phase of uh, space travel. Uh, there have been other books written about specific phases of space travel, uh, this particular one covers from the very first, 1959, when the original group of Mercury astronauts was chosen, through 1975, when my co-author, Deke Slayton, made his flight, the joint mission with the Soviets. Uh, it's also unique in that uh, other books, uh, movies have been made about the space program by outsiders. And although... The storylines were, were generally good. The descriptions of the personalities and the interactions, the, the jealousies, the, uh, the emotions associated with the failures are not as anywhere near as realistic or as accurate as we have tried to portray it in our book. There's a great deal of human drama in this book. Uh, just one example, when Dr. Von Braun learns that the Russians have put Sputnik in his face to, to see him turn on his heels and walk out of the room and friends see his eyes tearing up. Yes, he was so much a part of the original program, and uh, and then, of course, uh, very instrumental in the creation of the Saturn V, which took us to the moon and back. On May 25, 1961, when President Kennedy challenged America to put men on the moon within the decade and bring them home safely, did you honestly think we could do it? Yes, sir. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the uh, announcement was not a surprise to us. Uh, after my flight on May 5th, we were in Washington three days later, uh, and Kennedy was so excited about uh, the, the uh, success of the flight, excited about the public response, uh, excited about the fact that uh, here we were having a national goal, a national project. He changed the schedule that day, and he said, why don't we meet back at the Oval Office at the end of your day and let's talk about what has happened and let's get some NASA people and some Congress people here to find out what we can do in the future. 
He was briefed, of course, subsequent to that, and was just literally a few days after my 16-minute flight when he made the pronouncement. So we weren't surprised at the at the statement. I think all of us were a little surprised about the time schedule, maybe a little bit nervous about our being able to do it before the end of the decade of the 60s. That's That was quite, it's almost like Pat Riley promising the fans of L.A. that the Lakers would indeed repeat as champions the next year. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it sets up quite, that's quite a challenge, quite a goal to work for. Well, it was, but he was so enthusiastic about it, and it was totally an apolitical decision as far as I'm concerned. Some historians have treated him unfairly on that, saying his popularity had been reduced as a result of the Bay of Pigs, and uh, he thought he could regain some popularity by by latching onto the coattails of the space program. I disagree with that totally. He was really excited about it, just uh, absolutely a real space cadet. But then you had to lay out the schedule of flights leading up to the eventual lunar landing because so many of the things we tend to overlook. It looks so easy now in hindsight. Of course, we went to the moon, but in 1961, you hadn't. there hadn't been an American spacewalk yet. There hadn't been uh, docking in space. There hadn't been a lunar orbit yet. There was a, a little baby steps at that point. Well, fortunately, uh, and here I'm not striking a blow for, for people in space, but fortunately... With the Gemini program coming on, we had the flexibility to change our objectives around. Some specific flights were dedicated to rendezvous. Others were dedicated to floating around in space. Uh, things, The flexibility, when you have people and you have judgment factors on the ground and in space, you know, people still do pretty well. The human drama that comes through in a, in a book such as this, that single-mindedness, that goal that you're working toward, and just ignoring the obstacles, that, uh, heaven knows the obstacles that were thrown in your way along the way. Well, we did have a, we did trip a few times, no <laughs> question about that. Uh, the nice thing about it was that uh, many people captured uh, by the spirit of exploration, leaving the planet, going to another planet. Uh, a lot of things we didn't have to explain to the degree we have to explain them now. And this is true also of the leaders of Congress. They were caught up. They were swept up in the, in the fever of going to the moon and back. So that was uh, for a period of several years. We didn't have to march to Capitol Hill every year and explain where every single dollar was going to, do, going to go. But that's not to say that there weren't critics of the space program. Well, there always have been critics, but what I'm saying is that the critics were... Uh, it was easier to silence them. Yeah, <laughs> they were pushed back in the corner more easily than they are now. It is difficult these days when there isn't a particular specific... Oh, I think it was, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Mike Collins had told me once that if we were today to set a goal of going to the moon and back that we wouldn't be able to do it in anywhere near as short a time span as we did in the 60s. I think I would agree with that. I think I would agree with that. And here again, it's just, well, of course, now we've done it. You know, Some of the excitement is gone, obviously, uh, and maybe Monday morning uh, opinions. But I think, I think you're right. Basically, what Mike is saying is that it's, uh, it's space research, even though it's exploration, and a lot of people don't quite understand what research is all about. They don't understand that you can't tell them exactly what they're going to get for their money and exactly when it's going to happen. But you do know something good's going to happen and some kind of a product or a service or a material is going to make their lives better as a result of this research. Plus the fact you've got thousands of people gainfully employed because all that money goes into people's pockets. 
And uh, it doesn't go flying off into space. We didn't leave any money on the moon. <laughs> it kept a lot of uh, people gainfully at work. Left for, a couple of golf balls on the moon, as I recall. Well, but I paid for those. <laughs> <laughs> and I paid for the club head, too. <laughs> I, you know, I've always been curious. Is that your image that we see on MTV the, the, with the flag being planted in the moon? Well, of course, I don't know uh, which one. You, all six of us planted a flag. Mm. And generally, the the commander, being the senior officer, had the pleasure of planting the, the flag, and the co-pilot had the pleasure of taking the picture of the guy planting the flag. And, and I'm sure that all of them have, have been published in, in uh, over the years. But uh, you may have seen uh, the picture uh, of me hitting, actually hitting the golf ball up there. After this short break, Alan Shepard's emotional reaction to walking on the moon. back to my 1994 interview with Alan Shepard. It seems like so long ago now. It's what, 25 years since the, since the original moon landing. 20-some uh, years since yours. It's been almost 20 years since we've been on the moon. Does it seem that long ago to you? Well, uh, no, it doesn't seem that long ago. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's still very fresh in my mind, of course, and I'm sure in the mind of those fortunate ones who were also able to be up there. But, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we talk about that in the book a little bit. Uh, the one thing uh, that all of us have said at one time or another, in, in one way or another, that uh, even though a few of us have been recognized for having accomplished these things, uh, it's still the result of the efforts of thousands of people on the planet Earth. And I think all of us who, particularly those of us who perhaps have had more years of recognition than others uh, are quick to say that because they we know that without their help we never would have been able to make it. Sort of like we idolize Clark Gable for Gone with the Wind and we don't realize that all the many stage hands and set painters and things like that that made it possible for him to be in that movie to begin with. Well, I'm glad with. you think I look like Clark Gable. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize that you would not be among the first to be on the moon? Well, actually, my, uh, my physical problem uh, started uh, after Slayton's. As, you know, as we discussed in the book, De mm -hmm. Deeks really occurred. He was scheduled to fly the, the uh, fourth flight after Glenn. Glenn made his orbital flight, and then Deke was scheduled to follow John, and that's when the heart murmur occurred. So, you know, he was really grounded in 62. My problem didn't occur until after I was assigned to make the first Gemini mission. Tom Stafford was going to be my co-pilot, and we were already in training for three or four months and had been before the Meniere's uh, syndrome in my left inner ear caused me to be dizzy, disoriented, lack of balance, and so on, immediately grounded. And uh, as a result of that, of course, uh, Deke and I both chose to to stay with the program, hoping that somehow, some way, that our, our medical problems, physical problems would be corrected. The two of us really ran the, the astronaut program, including the simulators and the training functions and training crew and so on. So we became kind of close, and that's one reason why I agreed to help Deke and uh, the co-writers with the book. In 1969, if you couldn't be on the moon, was it the next best thing to be in 
uh, right there at in radio contact and right the next best thing, as it were, to being on the moon? Well, of course, Deacon and I were always close to the crews, uh, regardless of which one was flying. We always, one of us was always at the Cape in the pre-launch days, being sure that everything was was going smoothly for them. Uh, you know, Apollo 11 could uh, was not really planned to be the first landing, necessarily. You know, we thought, well, we may have. We didn't know how many flights we were going to have to make. And people somehow feel that, that Armstrong and Aldrin were targeted right from the start to make the first landing. That was not the case. Apollo 11 was the first opportunity, given the succession of flights and the types of flights leading up to that. But there was no guarantee that Apollo 11 was going to be able to make the landing. So uh, uh, I think we were very confident in the crew as we're as we left them at the Cape and flew back to the control center. Uh, and obviously we were in the control center most of the, most of the mission. We were very confident uh, that they could handle a job, but we weren't sure necessarily that all the equipment was going to work properly and make everything happen the way it, the way it eventually did. Well, those nail-biting last few minutes, you know, when Neil Armstrong is piloting that craft to, to the landing site, which apparently overshot by four miles the, <laughs> where it was supposed to land, trying to dodge boulders and craters and find someplace safe to land. It's, that, that uh, you know, when, when you look back 25 years again, you, you think, my gosh, it was so easy to land on the moon. You don't realize that moment. It, didn't, it wasn't easy. Those guys could have been killed. Well, Bill, you're right, and, and I appreciate your describing the situation, but you're talking to a guy who was concerned when they were coming down in the landing trajectory, when they had a computer uh, overload, overflow, uh, when the, possibly the computer wasn't going to work well enough to get them to the point where they could pitch over and actually see the lunar surface. Uh, there was a great deal of tension associated with that. Uh, I think people continue to have uh, continue to be nervous and have tensions even till the moment that Armstrong landed. But with this fellow you're talking to today, as soon as Neil pitched over and said he could see the surface, then I relaxed. I knew we had it made because uh, of the fact that we had a great test pilot, because of the fact that he had been great simulators, and I knew he was going to land somewhere. Of course, I didn't think it was going to take him quite as long as it did to <laughs> land. <laughs> but I actually started uh, breathing, uh, breathing more regularly uh, when he actually pitched over and was actually flying it. When you actually set foot on the moon's surface, what what was going through your mind at that point? I mean, it, it's got it's the dream of every child, isn't it, to eventually walk on another planet and then to actually plant your foot in that soil. It must, it must have been felt like a fantasy. Well, there's no question about it. Uh, it was a moment in my life which I will never forget uh, for a number of reasons. One, obviously the fact that uh, for a while, many years, I didn't, never thought I would be able to fly again. Uh, very satisfying to have been able to overcome that problem. Uh, very relieved to have made a a landing almost exactly where we were supposed to land. But then, after those first few emotional moments, uh, looking up in the black sky at the planet Earth, which not only is four times as large as the moon as we look at it from here, but also its color. You can actually see the blue reflected from the oceans. You can actually see the ice caps on the, 
north and south poles. You can see outlines of continents, sort of a brownish, uh, brownish colors. And so, I mean, beautiful, beautiful sight. Starting to get a little bit emotional at this point. Continuing on uh, looking at uh, at planet Earth and realizing, hey, you know, that place isn't as big looking at it from a quarter of a million miles away as we think it is standing down here. We think we don't have any limitations. We're infinite. Let's not worry about the planet. But you look at it from that distance uh, and you say, hey, maybe there is a limit to to our planet. Maybe we do have to start thinking about getting along together down there and stop fighting and start planning for the for the generations to come. Actually, I wept. Uh, the tears just rolled down my, my, my cheeks, and I uh, never would have predicted that to happen, but it was a very, very emotional moment for me. I just think the book is interesting from um, uh, a couple of points of view. But one of, uh, obviously, Slayton and I flew as pilots, and, and we were in management as well. So from our point of view, uh, we looked at ourselves as astronauts. We looked at other contemporaries as astronauts from the management point of view. And then the fact that we had such highly experienced writers helping us, uh, I think it goes together extremely well. And a lot of folks, including uh, Walla Cronkite, have told me they thought they were going to go do a quick review, and they found themselves unable to put it down. So so uh, I'm very pleased with it. And if we can just, if this book encourages maybe a few dozen youngsters to follow in our footsteps, then it'll be worthwhile. Alan Shepard died in 1998. He was 74. Now you can get Moonshot by Alan Shepard by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 1994 interview with the man who made the words, Houston, we have a problem, famous. My conversation with Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell. The first thought when that bang occurred and we were in deep trouble was, uh, why me? Why now? Why didn't it happen on 12 or wait till 14, you know? (laughs) And that's a typical reaction of anybody who suddenly finds themselves in in a dangerous situation. And my 2000 interview with the second man ever to walk on the moon, astronaut Buzz Aldrin. There were times when I wasn't that sure what great heroes we were, you know, I... Right after we came back from the moon, there were demonstrations going, anti-establishment demonstrations, and they threw eggs at us. Can you believe that? And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's interview, would you please tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, what do you get when you combine the talents of one of America's top comedians and one of its top cartoonists? Well, you get a children's book illustrated by New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast. I remember that a lot from being a kid, that feeling of kind of, you know, whether it was like looking at the National Enquirer. I guess you get the same thing from like the Learning Channel these days. Just that edge of like, I can't look, I can't look, I must look. I must, I have to look. <laughs> That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.